Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Psalm 32. It's also printed for you there in the bulletin, Psalm 32. A mascot of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the great rushes of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with brit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Spend the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Spoiler alert. These are two words of common courtesy in a culture of mass media production of movies, books, and television shows in an internet age where these words alert us and orient us to potential spoilers that might be on earth if we continue reading that blog or continue watching those videos. Now, despite having these two words that we see all over the place, I'm sure all of us have still experienced the disappointment of having a book or a movie or a show spoiled for us unwantingly. However, I also think that we experience things that we might call happy spoilers as well. Maybe it's a coworker or a boss accidentally letting it slip early that you are the person at work that's getting the promotion. Maybe it's a family member who lets it slip just a little early that there's going to be a new baby in the family and there's a gift of new life on the way. Or kids, maybe it's one or both of your parents letting it slip early that you guys are getting that trip to Disneyland that you've been begging for for years. Well, similarly today, our psalm also starts off with a happy spoiler. We say David jumped right into the psalm and he's rejoicing. We don't have the context set for us yet. He then moves from a happy spoiler to then filling in the context of what was happening in the narrative of his life. And then reflecting on all these events, he leads to reflection of a lasting foundation. So we're going to look at the psalm in just three points today in our brief time together. We'll look at first a happy spoiler, and then secondly an honest confession, and then finally a lasting foundation. So first starting off with the happy spoiler, like we said, we jump right in. We don't have the context for what's come before or what comes after. But what's clear to us is that David is in a good mood. He's in a chipper mood of rejoicing. And he's rejoicing because he's thinking about the realities of what it means to be forgiven in Christ. He starts off saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. At first we acknowledge that David has forgiveness on his mind, reflecting on what it means to stand, be in right standing with God. And we see that this is what David chooses to celebrate, and this is such a beautiful thing that he does celebrate, and quite honestly countercultural. 
Just think very briefly today about the things that are celebrated in society. Is it not status or influence or identity that are celebrated? But that's not what David chooses to celebrate here. Rather, he chooses to celebrate that the highest joy is to have forgiveness from the Lord. And we too should join in and recover David and seeing this as our greatest joy, our highest happiness in this life. David goes on, he continues to say, also blessed is the person whose sin is covered. Now if you're reading the ESV or other English translations, like I just read, it prob- the word here is probably covered, and that's a good translation, that's helpful. But the Hebrew word carries with it maybe a better connotation of atoned for or atoning. So we might better translate this, whose sin is atoned for. And this one commentary notes that David is not relying on his own righteousness. He's not coming to the table appealing to his own righteousness, but rather saying that there's another righteousness that has atoned for this person's sin. Furthermore, David goes on to celebrate this reality one more time at just a slightly different angle when he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's clear that David's not only in a chipper mood, but his three-time repetition of this reality points to the fact that David recognizes that this is the ultimate joy, the ultimate reality. David here does not celebrate physical health or well-being. And not that David is opposed to those things as he celebrates them in other portions of the psalm. But it's here that David recognizes that if we do not have peace with the Lord, we do not have forgiveness and right standing with the Lord, truly all else is in vain, and we can have no true lasting happiness, no true peace, no true joy. Herman Bavinck, the great Dutch theologian of the 19th century, said, certainly there can be no peace of mind and conscience, no joy in one's heart, no buoyant moral activity or blessed life and death before the guilt of sin is removed, All fear of punishment has been completely eradicated and the certainty of eternal life in the communion with God fills one's consciousness with its consolation and power. And while David is celebrating this reality, this great joy that he has, what means has David taken to come to a place of such joy and happiness? There's there's a very slight hint of it at the end of verse 2. It's repentance. David says, says quite, something quite different than what he's been celebrating above. In the first three stanzas, he's been celebrating, blessed is the person who is forgiven, whose transgression is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. But now he changes his tune ever so slightly to say, blessed is also the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now David celebrates this and says this reality that blessed is the man whose no spirit is no deceit, because David recognizes that there can be no true forgiveness, no true reconciliation to the Lord if there's a deceitfulness in our spirit. It's a person who's without, who's without deceit that they look at themselves accurately. They take God's word as a mirror looking into their own heart, seeing their own transgressions, their own sins, the, way, the many ways they fall short each and every day and transgress the Lord and sin against their neighbor. And so recognizing this, David then moves to his own repentance, and we come to our second point, an honest confession. 
Now, unfortunately, while the narrative started off happy and joyful, this is where it gets very emotional and sad. So we'll have to bear with this this section. We'll camp out here for a little while. Verse 3, he starts to unpack what's happening in his life. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. Now, we're not sure what specific sin or event is happening in David's life. He doesn't disclose that information to us. But one thing is evident, that there is some sin in his life that he's committed, some egregious sin. And moreover, this is an unconfessed sin. He's not confessed it to the Lord yet. He says, I kept silent. And as a result, he says, my bones wasted away, and he's groaning all the day long. He's in agony and torment over the sin that's unconfessed. The unconfessed sin is a helpful reminder And if you're anything like me, this is a big temptation for you. That when you do sin, you feel that it's easier just to suppress the guilt of it, to just push it down a little further and further, rather than bringing it to the Lord and finding healing and forgiveness. This is one of the ways in which sin is so deceitful. It deceives us into thinking that it's not as destructive as it truly is that if we continue to follow this path, that it will not lead to death, that it won't lead to misery, that it won't lead to a fractured communion with both God and neighbor. We must be watchful of how sin is deceitful. But sin is not only deceitful in the sense that it plays down the destructiveness of it, it's also deceitful in the fact that we think it convinces us that we find true joy in our sin, that we can have happiness in our sin. How easy is it to turn to our idols for comfort rather than rusting in the comforts of Christ that he's already given to us? How easy is it to look at the Sabbath day as just another day for us, a day off from work, that we get to do what we want now rather than treating it for the Lord as his day? How easy is it to indulge a lingering, a lingering glance rather than being faithful and remaining chaste? to indulge in the slander of our neighbor rather than taking the effort to speak their good name and be willing not to receive a false report on their account? Or how easy is it to contemplate and covet the loved ones and possessions of others rather than being content with the many things that the Lord has blessed us with? I've been convicted of this in my own life, especially the last couple weeks I think many of you know that um, I was born and raised in Wisconsin. If you didn't know that, you could just figure it out by the way I said Wisconsin. But you might not know that I I love sports. Sports have always been one of my favorite activities to watch, to go to the games. And I am a huge, diehard Milwaukee Bucks basketball fan. And if you're following the playoffs, the Bucks are currently in a playoff series with the Boston Celtics, who are a fantastic team. And the series has been back and forth. One team wins, the other team wins. And I've been convicted of my own idolatry of the Milwaukee Bucks and basketball because I've said so many times, if the Bucks just win today, everything will be okay. And I think, friends, whatever it is, whether it's sports or food or other things, we often say if we just had X, everything would be okay. But missing from my thought in these equations is any sense of 
if the Lord's kingdom was advanced that day, whether we loved our neighbors well, whether we served them well on that day. And friends, we must be careful and watchful of the deceitfulness of sin, the, the deceptive promises it holds out for us that are not true, but also the deceptiveness of not understanding its destructiveness, that that path leads to death, not life. David continues walking through the narrative. He not only finds out the quality of his suffering and that he's groaning all the day long, but then he also fills in the specific quantity of his suffering and misery in verse 4. He says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's during the day when the sun is in the sky that the Lord's hand is heavy upon David, but also when the moon is in the sky that his hand is heavy upon David. He's drawing out that there's not a time, there's not a single time in the day, whether night or day, that David has peace, that the Lord's hand rests heavy upon him. Furthermore, David goes out to say, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I think probably as Californians, we don't need any help recognizing or coming to mind what it looks like to live in a dry area or live in a place where it's very hot and can get oppressively hot during the summer. But David is clearly a man who's left at the end of his rope. He has no peace. The Lord's hand is heavy upon him. He's at the end of his strength that's dried up. There's an inner gnawing and an inner peace. He just has no rest at any time. But friends, while this is a very emotional portion of the psalm, we also see the graciousness of the Holy Spirit in this, these two verses as well. Rather than allowing David just to continue in his path, indulging his own sin, indulging the lust of the flesh, the Lord refuses to give him peace. He places his hand heavy upon him. He does not leave him to his own devices, but rather stirs and pricks and convicts his conscience of the sin, refusing to give him peace, recognizing there's no true healing in the path that he's taken. And the Holy Spirit does this for us too. He stirs up our consciences. He refuses to allow us to just sit with our sin, to just sit in our misery. But he opens our eyes just ever so slightly and shines light on our sin shines light on the true darkness, the true destructiveness of our sin, and reminds us of our need for grace in Christ Jesus. And we see that's where David turns next. And we see in verse 5 a beautiful example of what it looks like to honestly confess our sins to the Lord. David starts off saying, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Now, one commentary points out that David's, this is not just a mere remembrance in the acknowledgement that he has of his sins, for the commentator points out that did not Cain and Judas both remember their sins, but there was not repentance, there was not a turning from their sins, but rather this is just a clear confession of David recognizing that he's transgressed both God and his law in both thought, word, and deed. Furthermore, David says, I did not cover my iniquity, This is the same word that's used in verse 2. Well, he says, blessed is the man whose sin is atoned for. David also uses the same word here, saying, I did not atone for my iniquity. Here David is not trusting on his own righteousness, but the righteousness of another. David recognizes he's not bringing anything into this confession, but his shame, his guilt, and his sin. 
And it's because he has nothing to offer that he only comes forth as a sinful person with stained hands that he turns to the righteousness of another. David confesses his sins to the Lord and surely as a faithful God, God hears his, hears his prayer and forgives him of his iniquity. Having received finally, finally healing from his torments and his sin, David then moves into exhorting others the path of taking a similar path to this. Verse 6, David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the great rushes of water they shall not reach him. Now, while it's clear that David has people who are godly in mind here, could we not rightly say that this is true of anybody? That there's always a time when the Lord may be found, that at any point we may go to the Lord in prayer and confess our sins, and that if anybody at any time would cast themselves down, trusting and hoping in the mercy, asking for mercy and forgiveness of their sins, that they would find peace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're trusting in your own righteousness, your own works, your own merits, would you consider casting yourself before the Lord, begging for his mercy, receiving true peace, true longing and happiness that you've been looking for? David says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. I'm not sure if anybody does White River kayaking or rafting here, but if you've done that, just, just think about sometimes the, the waves in the water can be so aggressive and so strong, and it can, be, it can be overwhelming and just scary, quite frankly. And it's this idea that you have all these waters rushing around you and crashing around you, that it builds a wall, and you feel like there's no way that you're, there's no sense that I can escape this without being unscathed, without being harmed by these waves. But David says that for those who are Christ, those who belong to God, even in these situations where this, the walls of perils surround these people, they do, not, they do not reach him. They cannot harm God's people. That though our very lives and our bodies might be taken for us, our souls and bodies dwell secure in Christ because he is a faithful God. David continues reflecting on this, saying, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's just this beautiful reflection that he has on the foundation that those in Christ Jesus have as they think about what God they belong to. And this kind of reflection leads David to think about just what a great lasting foundation he has. That's our final, our final point. Having experienced the joy and then filling in the narrative, David then moves into kind of a wisdom portion of the psalm. Speaking from a very personal place, David says, I will instruct you and teach you with the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you having experienced the true peace, the true forgiveness that he experienced earlier in the psalm, David then moves to a positive wisdom exhortation to encourage others to follow the same path, to come to the Lord in repentance, to find true healing, true peace through the forgiveness of Christ Jesus. David not only gives a positive exhortation in verse 8, but then he also gives a wisdom warning in verse 9 as well. He says, "'Be not like the horse of the mule without understanding.'" 
Now, I'm sure almost everyone here had an uncle or a grandpa at some point. When they thought that somebody was stubborn, they would say, that person's as stubborn as a mule. But little did you know it had such an ancient source of, of wisdom. And while I think we think back on those memories and we might chuckle at our grandpa or uncle saying those things, that there's, there's great wisdom in what David is saying here. I think what David is getting at is, do not be so short-sighted like a horse or a mule. Don't be like an animal and you only see what's in front of you, that you have to be bribed with food in order to seek direction. And I think if you've been on a horse, you realize what stubborn animals they are. They often go off the path. They kind of go wherever, despite your despite where you want them to go. And that's why I've not been on a horse in a decade and hopefully we'll never be on a horse again. But I think David's just getting at when the Holy Spirit does prick our consciences, when he does bring conviction of our sin, don't, do not ignore those things. Don't be so short-sighted that you realize that you don't realize that there are eternal things at stake in how and how sin affects us, how sin affects our relationship with the Lord and our neighbor. Be careful not to reject these things. Do not be like the horse or the mule. David then goes on celebrating the reality of these two things, having given the two possible ways that you can respond to his wisdom. He gives two possible outcomes, depending on how you follow the advice from above. If you, if you take his counsel, David says many, or sorry, if you take the counsel of being stubborn like a horse or the mule, David says many are the sorrows of the wicked. But in contrast to that, David says those who are in the Lord say, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all ye upright in heart. I think having looked at the psalm as a narrative, this, what David says here surprises us a little bit. And several things he says throughout the psalm surprise us a little bit. This word steadfast love is the famous word for hesed. It could be translated in so many ways, faithfulness, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. It's this idea of God's unending faithfulness that David celebrates here. But how is David able to say these things? As we saw, David celebrates the covenant faithfulness of God, the uprightness of heart at the end of this verse, that his sins have been atoned for. How is David able to be so confident of the Lord's favor and forgiveness of his sins? David is able to say these things because in this point in history, David is looking forward to the promised Messiah that was promised to Israel, that would come and would take away the sins of the people. And friends, now at this point in history, we look back to that promised Messiah and we know that his favor is for us and that God is for us. We see God's favor for us most clearly at the cross. It's at the cross where out of the abundance of the love of the Father, he sends his one and only Son And the son goes willingly, living the perfect life of righteousness that we could never live, going willingly to the cross, bearing bearing on his shoulders our sin and the wrath of the Father that we so justly deserve 
in order that we might be seen as righteous and reconciled in the sight of the Lord. Furthermore, in his resurrection, Christ frees us from both the condemning power of sin, but also the reigning power of sin. It has indwelled us with his Holy Spirit, having his presence always, conforming us more and more to the image of his Son, Christ Jesus, producing us in the fruits of the Spirit and that which is pleasing to him. I think such a natural thought to go to after this is I understand these promises. I know I'm forgiven in the Lord. I know I have the Holy Spirit. But I still struggle with indwelling sin all the time, each and every day. And it's true that there are many of us here that have struggled with the same sins every day for decades now being so discouraged that, there's, that we feel like we should be further along than where we're at in our sanctification. But friends, I, th- I think what we need to be reminded of is, though it's true, we will always struggle with our sins till the day we die. We'll always struggle with various temptations day in and day out from the flesh, the sin, and the devil that we might never have true victory over these sins as the Apostle Paul struggled with, the thorn in his side. But friends, we do not walk in these struggles battling against these sins without hope. But we do so as people clinging to the cross each and every day, knowing that we serve a God who's able to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, a God who's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we come to him in confession. And for those who are discouraged today that you feel that there's, there's so little, there's so little there in your life, just, there's so much weakness in the struggle, would you, would you be reminded that we serve a God who is so long-suffering and patient and gentle and kind, who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, understands these things, Think of Isaiah 42.3. When he sees a bruised reed, he does not break that. When he sees a faintly burning wick, he does not snuff it out. I think one of the most beautiful illustrations of this comes from Pilgrim's Progress. There's a scene in the book where Christian is being shown around different rooms by a housekeeper. And there's one room that he goes into. And over here on the wall or somewhere in the room, there's a fire that is, is burning. And Satan is there, which is buckets of water, and he's just pouring, he's continuing to pour water on this fire. But it, the fire's not going out. He's just pouring all this water on it, but it's doing nothing. And then the housekeeper takes Christian around to the other side of the room, and he sees that on the other side, while well, the devil is pouring water on this fire, trying to get it out, and to, to no end, no avail, and in continued frustration, nothing's happening is because on the other side, there's somebody who's pouring oil on the fire and growing it stronger and stronger. This is the God we serve, who came in our flesh, who lived a perfect life of righteousness and obedience, who is sympathetic to our weaknesses. And if, if you're discouraged by, you feel like you should be further along, that there's so little, that there's so little victory over certain sins, would you take heart? knowing that the Lord does not put out that little flame, but continues to get down on his hands and knees and blow on it and do anything he can to preserve that. 
that he is a faithful God who began a good work in you and will bring it to completion. And in our times, that when we do fall into temptation and sin inevitably, we rest on the fact that he's a forgiving God who will hear us and we wake up to mercies that are new every morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you, are, you are a forgiving God. You are long-suffering and gentle as we bring our, our many sins and weaknesses before us. You do, not, you do not turn us away. You do not point the finger or shame us, but you, you cleanse us of our unrighteousness for Jesus' sake. And thank you that you have indwelled us with your Holy Spirit that your presence is, is always with us each and every day, and that we, we rest so secure, body and soul, in the great promises that you've given to us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that in, in our struggles, in our temptation with sin, Lord, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, help us mortify these deeds of the flesh. But Lord, draw us, draw us to remembrance of, of what Christ did for us at the cross, that we are buried with him and we're also raised with him and we walk in new life. We have, have newness of life in Christ and that we would not be drawn to despair or, or discouragement or doubt, Lord, but that you would, you would seal these promises to our hearts more and more every day. We pray and ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.